0: before we look into the Word. Father, indeed, we celebrate you today as we've been thinking and reflecting back to you how wonderful you are for the grace we have given to us through Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that all we have is Christ. We have nothing to boast about in ourselves, but all we have is grace in Christ. So, Lord, we thank you that we do have your Word. We thank you, Lord, that your Word points us to Christ and points us to our need to share together and find community among the people of God and as we celebrate the wonders of grace we find in Christ. And so, Lord, we pray that you would guide us today as we look into your word. May our time that will lead this now into a time around your table, may it all be, Father, a time to celebrate the love that we have received from you and the love we share together as fellow believers. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We live in an increasingly fragmented world. Instead of living interdependently in community, more and more people have adopted an isolated lifestyle. This is not only true in our families. As you know, there's so much fragmented, fragmentation going on in the family unit. But we also see a fragmented neighborhoods. I must confess, we don't hard to interact with anyone on our street. Nobody seems to talk to anybody. It's just a very sad reality in our community. Many people don't know each other anymore. Uh, But also that fragmentation is found in churches. For many people, faith is a solo pursuit. And so our nation has been described by various experts as a nation of believers on one hand rather than belongers recently there was a book put out by author and pastor Joshua Harris and he offered the following assessment of this trend that he has identified in our culture today he had written a book previously to uh, this uh, book I'm referring to called stop dating the church and he he had written a book on dating since uh, he doesn't believe in the idea of long- term just dating, 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 and doesn't seem to go anywhere. And if you're serious, when you're at an age in which you're marriageable, his point is stop dating and get serious and move toward commitment. And so anyway, he looks at what's going on in the trend that people have to not commit themselves to a local church. And he uses the analogy of it's like a dater who wants to attend a church but who has no intention of moving toward formally joining that church. And so again, the book, Stop Dating the Church, he, he notes several characteristics of quote-unquote church daters. They tend to be people who are me-centered in their attitude toward the church. Their primary concern is, what can the church do for me? They also tend to be a, uh, they place a great deal of importance on their independence. Uh, although they're willing to attend, they're careful to avoid getting too involved especially when it comes to people. So we want to keep our distance there. We don't want to get uh, overly involved in somebody else's life or them get overly involved in our lives. Another characteristic of a church dater, according to Harris, is that church daters have a tendency to have a critical spirit. And by that he means that they come to church as consumers, primarily, and that they're short on allegiance. And they're, they're very quick to find faults with something they don't like. And they're rather fickle. They will not really invest in things for the long term. And if they attend a church, they do so with a wandering eye, always sort of keeping their eye out. Well, yeah, it's okay here, but what about they seem to have something better that I like over there. So they're going to go to some other church over there where they find better music, better programs, maybe a bigger crowd where they can somehow get lost in the crowd and just sort of blend in. Well, this is sort of a sad commentary on this whole idea of church dating that Harris seems to develop. But I just want to make sure that you understand our perspective here in our church. And that can be found from the elders in stating our mission of our church, our vision statement, and of course our core values. They're found in your bulletin. Would you, would you find that in your insert in your bulletin? I just have that in front of you now. It has New Village Church 2013 at the top. I'd like to, again, encourage you just to read together with me in unison our mission statement. Once you find it, hopefully you found it. Let's read it together. Our mission is to glorify God by making disciples who treasure, live out, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, again, we've been trying to draw out from this list a number of things that we believe need to be highlighted that that help support why we've come to these conclusions. And I want us to draw your attention to number four today and our core values. In light of this concern about the fragmenting uh, nature of relationships in today's world, particularly in churches, number four, we believe we value prayer, which I've talked about in previous sermon, membership and accountability for gospel-centered lives. Now, the elders of our church want to make sure that you understand that believers belong in churches. The local church is where Christians can thrive and where they can grow spiritually. And as Harris would say, the local church is central to God's plan for every generation. It's not just a fad. It's not just something that we believe, something you should jump on board with, but something we believe has been true ever since Jesus established this church. The scriptures make it clear that disciples of Jesus Christ are expected to live out their commitment to him in the context of a local church. Now, many people, of course, still waver on that issue. And this morning, I want to answer several questions pertaining to this issue of the idea of committing themselves to a local church. And the first question is, why is church membership important? And so we're going to try to explain that a little bit today, touch on several things, not certainly not exhaustive. Why does our church place a high value on membership? And what relationship does the observance of the Lord's Supper bear to the level of commitment among those who celebrate it together? In other words, what is the significance of partaking of the Lord's Supper together as it pertains to this issue about our uh, commitment to each other as fellow believers and our commitment to Christ? All right, let's look then, first of all, at our first point in your notes there in your insert. Membership expresses committed love. Membership in a local church helps to express, one way to express, committed love. One of the dangers of worldly thinking, infiltrating the church in today's world, is the tendency to be comfortable with just merely being an attender. Someone who comes and just sort of sits and uh, partakes in some uh, passive way within the church and they avoid making the commitment to be a member of the church that they are attending. The New Testament is quite clear. Local churches had membership lists and they knew who was in the church and who was out of the church. You say, "Well, how do you know that?" Well, turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to be reading verses 12 and 13. This is a situation in which we had a church there in that city of Corinth and Paul's writing them a, a rather strong uh, letter of admonition because he's answering some of the questions and concerns he's heard about in the church and he hears about a, a fellow in the church who is on their church role, he professes to be a follower of Jesus and he is in an immoral relationship with someone he's not married to, it happens to be his stepmother. He said, this is something that's quite bizarre, not very common in that culture at the time, and he's like, nobody seems to be too concerned about it, and nothing's been done about it. And so we read in verses 12 and 13 of 1 Corinthians 5, what have I to do with judging outsiders? That's an interesting term, outsiders. Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Now again, we have to clarify this is done after, in a certain procedure. It's not something they just do as they're trying to be judgmental. They're doing it as a process of showing love to this man and helping to establish the fact that he's clearly living in sin and therefore trying to deal with him in committed love. He's living in immorality, claiming to be a follower of Jesus, and they're trying to show that how could someone be removed from the fellowship if they, if they were not known to be a member of the fellowship? How can you remove someone unless they're in the fellowship? And so that's my point here. There are two groups of people. There were members and there were non-members. And So church discipline is a form of biblical love. Now that seems radical to the way many people think, but it's really not. It's a form of radical love because it strives to restore fallen sinners, by coming alongside them and urging them to forsake their sin and follow Christ. That actually is a wonderful ministry of showing love and concern for that person. Just like I'm thankful my father disciplined me in love and my mother disciplined me in love, so I'm thankful and we can say as a church family we do so with a desire to love those so that they would learn to turn from what's wrong and walk in the light. Now in John chapter 13, Jesus called his followers to love one another as he had loved them. That's the standard he set. He said, I want you to love each other as I have loved you. John 13, 34, 35. Now we are therefore commanded to link arms with other believers, other followers of Jesus, and we're to commit ourselves to living out the practical implications of selfless, sacrificial living so that the needs of our brothers and sisters in Christ could be met. Now, Paul urged the, the, the members of the church there in Galatia in chapter 6, verse 10 of the book of Galatians, there to do good to everybody. So we are encouraged to do good to everybody. That includes all kinds of people, especially, he says, those who are of the household or the family of faith. Again, Paul understands that there is a collect number of people who are. Part of the family of faith. We're to make sure that we do good to those people as we do, uh, do various good things to other people as well. Who, you have to sort of beg the question when he says the household of faith, you say, well, who is their spiritual family? Would they know who that would include? Apparently they did know who that would include. And who is our spiritual family? That again raises the question, who is a member? Who is a person who has identified themselves formally with the local church? How can we possibly devote our energies and resources of doing good to a nebulous group of believers who are out there somewhere? We don't know who exactly they are, but we're supposed to do that. It doesn't make any sense unless you understand there was a a finite, designated group of believers, those who called members of the local church. Recently, I've gone through the experience of cleaning out and finding and identifying various old items in our family, And uh, I've brought with me this morning a couple of items that I've brought back with me. Um, Two books, which are uh, from the 1800s. This particular book uh, is from a family member uh, from my ancestry, going back on my father's side of the family, uh, called Ida Plain, P-L-A-I-N-E. She has her name imprinted on the front of this book. This is actually a hymnal from 1860, and uh, this was something, obviously, must have been a very other prized possession for her to have her name imprinted on the front of it. And obviously, something she had before she was married, because she married a Musser. And I have a copy of the next hymnal, which has uh, presented to Ida S., which is Ida Susan Plain Musser. And so that's the book she had once she was married. And so I grabbed these books, thinking that's pretty, that's pretty fascinating, part of my heritage, part of my ancestry, of people who were worshiping the same Lord I worship, And they're part of my family tree. I can trace them back. I know who's a part of my family and who's not. Now I know sometimes that gets complicated if you're adopted and there are various uh, difficulties in tracing some of your family tree. But the point is, many of us, if you ask us, who's your family, you can identify, we can identify our family. Well, the church of Jesus Christ is to come to the point where we know clearly who are the members of your local family of that local church. Because if we're going to practice the one another commands of the New Testament, to receive one another, to pray for one another, to bear each other's burdens, to uh, be patient with, uh, uh, receive one another, to admonish one another, to encourage one another, all these commands that are listed, about 25 of those kinds of commands, how are we going to do those unless we know who it is we're supposed to practice those kinds of practical, uh, hands on expressions of love to other believers? Here's a good quote. Mark Dever says Membership is the outward expression of committed love for fellow believers. Membership in the local church is the outward expression of committed love for fellow believers. What that says is is that I am committing myself to say that I am a part of, of living out the fact that I'm going to love each other as Christ has loved me, and I do that to show that I'm one of the disciples of Christ in the context of a local church. Committed serving love only thrives in the context of commitment. For example, a church is compared in the Bible to a flock of sheep and a shepherd. And so shepherds are to offer care, according to the Bible, to a definite group of sheep. So that when Paul Peter writes the elders, he says, I want you to shepherd the flock of God among you while providing examples to the flock that's assigned to you and given to you by God. He doesn't say, shepherd every believer that's ever lived all over the world. It's impossible. So he says, I want you to shepherd the flock. Now, every shepherd knows which sheep are in his flock and which are not. And So Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, calls on believers to obey their leaders and to submit to those leaders, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account Let them do this with joy. Now, what is the implications of that? Well, if the church is to function as God's flock, there must be a loving submission to clearly identified leaders in the local church, along with loving oversight by specific leaders who are committed to providing spiritual oversight over a specific identifiable group of professing believers under the oversight, ultimately, of the chief, of shepherds, that is Jesus Christ himself. And so I hope you've seen that I'm trying to develop this theme of membership is a way in which we express committed love. It has to happen in the context of a, a specific, identifiable group of believers who come together, committed to each other, and to the cause of Christ, centering around the gospel that unifies us. And that leads us to my next point. Membership enhances and promotes unity. Unity. Another form of worldliness that has seeped into the local church in today's world, infiltrating the thinking of God's people in this day and age is individualism. That is that worldly values are encouraging people to live for themselves to celebrate our rugged independence. We like to be self-made people or think that we can be somehow living on our own, not relying or dependent on anybody else. Yet this was the specific concern that Paul rebuked in the church in Corinth. If you have your Bibles, find 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I think we're going to turn there. And I want us to draw attention to your, to, in that text important words that Paul spoke to correct some things going on in this church because they gathered together and in so doing they would have a meal together which became the context of the Lord's Supper <clears throat> and apparently there were some members of this church who were very well to do they were uh, quite well off they brought an exquisite array of food that was sophisticated to have all sorts of elements to that dinner that they brought it's like if you've ever gone to one of those outdoor concerts and, and you see these people uh, uh, out on the, on the uh, lawn, they'll bring their candelabra and their cheeses and their wines and whatever. They bring all this fancy stuff, you know. And it's like they came and they brought the best of the best to this dinner, and there were some people who were very uh, limited in their, their ability to provide for themselves, and they came with very little and here are these people who were well off, didn't care about anybody else but themselves. They just start eating and feasting, just having a big old time, getting drunk. I mean, they're just to excess. And they're ignoring the fact there are people there who have hardly anything to eat. So Paul is just highly upset at this phenomenon that they wouldn't share, that, they, that they're not celebrating the fact that they're unified together as followers of Jesus Christ. And so you'll notice in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, there's a common phrase repeated again and again and again. Verse 18. When you come and meet together. Verse 20. When you come together as a church. Verse 33. When you meet together. And verse 34. When you come together to eat, wait for one another. In other words, Remember, you're a part of this thing. You're going to share the meal together. It's not just about you. It's about celebrating your family connection and the one-anothering of valuing everybody who's there. And then verse, of course, 34, so that you may not come together for judgment. Coming together to commemorate their unity in the gospel by remembering the, the death that Jesus Christ suffered on their behalf as their substitute, it was ruined The meal was ruined by this behavior of selfishness and their impatience to wait for each other. And so just as we cannot have eternal life apart from uniting ourselves to Jesus Christ by faith, so living in union with Christ rules out living, and here in your notes you'll fill in here, rules out living as a lone ranger. If you're united to Christ, that means that you cannot be cut off and not united to those who are also united to Christ. not surprised then, the writer of Hebrews urged his readers to admonish fellow believers to do what? Hebrews 10, 24, 25. Well, we're to love, encourage each other to love and to do good deeds. Why? Well, because the tendency is that some people are going to forsake the assembling of themselves together. Some people are going to go off and live on their own. Celebrate individualism. Apparently some were beginning to do that. And he says, no, you need to be encouraging each other. You need to speak into each other's lives on a regular basis. All the more as you're waiting for the day in which Christ returns. It's going to get harder and harder sometimes to be faithful in following Christ. We need to keep having this time together. It's so valuable and so necessary. Why? Because we are united to Christ and we're united to each other. If believers live as lone rangers, we forego the much-needed mutual encouragement and the admonishment to live out the implications of the gospel that we share together and that we celebrate together. And So Paul had to remind the believers in Corinth, next chapter, chapter 12, what does he say to them? (laughs) He spends time challenging them to remember the value of every single member of the body of Christ. And when we live independently of each other as members of Christ's body, then the body of Christ does not function the way it was designed to function. Suppose if you could take your hand, or maybe you've injured your your hand at one point, you've injured your thumb. Suppose you take your thumb out of commission. Suppose you take your thumb and it doesn't work and you can't do anything with your thumb for a week. Can you tie your shoes without your thumb? I couldn't. Can you bowl without your thumb? I don't know. Two fingers don't seem to do it too well. And some people like to hold the ball in their hand with no finger holes. But I'm just saying, if you don't have your thumb, what happens? Then oftentimes you can't do the functions you are used to doing, which hold the thumb works with the what? With the fingers. And the palm, which are connected to the wrist and the arm. And, the, and here you can do all kinds of things that you're used to doing, including even holding your toothbrush. I mean, the simplest little things work best. Why? Because our thumb helps us to accomplish that, those things. They work together. And so the point here is, as Paul develops in the human body, is that similarly, every believer, every member of the local church, has a purpose, and the purpose is to work together to edify each other. That is, to build them up, to encourage them, and to help them accomplish what God wants them to be doing and to encourage them in the in their gospel together that we desperately need to know that we're loved by God, we're forgiven by God, and we're more sinful than we ever realized we truly are. Now, the problem with many people, of course, is what? Many people want to avoid people within the body who are hurting and so they steer clear of people that they think well i don't want to get involved in that person's life gee whiz all they do is they talk about their problems they got a lot of problems i don't want to be i don't i got enough problems of my own but that person needs edifying that person needs another member of the body to work with them to help them some people are too concerned with protecting their privacy, and so they, what they do. They withdraw from deep involvement and, and, and working together with other members of the body, and they want to sort of hold up their, their, their image of what they think they want people to see them as. Oh, I'm a strong person. I got my act together. Meanwhile, what? I fall apart. I'm worried sick. I can't sleep at night. I got all kinds of problems. I need people to pray for me and pray with me and speak into my life. Unfortunately, too many people are maintaining their freedom from burdens, from bearing burdens, and from messy problems that other people have. Why? Because they celebrate individualism. And Paul says, look here, we're a part of a unified family. We share together. We all need the gospel. We all need a Savior. We all need God to rescue us. He rescued us in the past from our failings in the past. He's rescuing us right now. He will rescue us in the future. We desperately need a Savior. In her recent book, Finding God in Hidden Places, Johnny Erickson Tada talks about a times when she is sitting in a situation we're going to see in just a moment where we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And she has a person that always must sit beside her. By the way, she's a quadriplegic uh, as a result of a diving accident. As a teenager, she has been about 40 years in a wheelchair and so she's sitting there as a quadriplegic and she desperately needs to have someone beside her who will reach onto that plate and they will select two pieces of the matzah, one for that person and one for Johnny. And since Johnny is unable to partake of communion by herself, she's dependent on that person and relies upon them to handle the bread for her. And she says I, she sees this as a good thing. It makes her feel connected. It makes her feel interdependent as a member of the body of Christ. Isn't that a wonderful image? And by living, unfortunately, on the perimeter of church life, as so many people do as attenders, many people are denying a fundamental spiritual principle, and that is no one can live life alone and isolated. If you cut and sever my thumb from my body, it will not function. It will not live long. There is no life apart from the head, right? So here's a good quote from Johnny Erickson Todd. He says, communion celebrates the body of Christ, that is the literal body of Jesus Christ that was broken on the cross for us. And communion also celebrates the, the body of Christ, that is the people of God, the body of Christ, the church. And communion is a celebration of unity. We're all hurting, we're all in desperate need of help that Christ provides to us through his body and through the gospel we share together. So we celebrate the Lord's Supper when we are gathered, not when we're home alone, but we do so gather to signify our unity and our interdependence on each other and on the grace of Jesus Christ. And we don't celebrate at home. Why? Which because to celebrate at home the Lord's Supper would be to signify our independence of one another. We are members of the same body when we are believers in Christ. I have one more point. Can you stay with me that long? Are you still with me? Okay. Well, you get six weeks and you can think about this, okay? All right. Third point, membership provides also, and this is what from our value statement we said, number four, membership provides accountability. Accountability. That's a, not a very good word in today's world, is it? Accountability. Another danger that worldliness infiltrates the thinking of believers and it encourages the concept of cheap grace. That's a word that was uh, coined by Diedrich Bonhoeffer, the German martyr, uh, put to death uh, Second World War. And the idea here at cheap grace is that we think of discipleship without any kind of commitment, no sense of holiness uh, being essential, as a part of following Jesus. And so the church membership functions in a way to sort of counter this tendency of cheap grace. Membership in a church encourages accountability. We read in Romans 10 that the gospel calls us to confess Jesus with our mouths as Lord. That means it must be something we've acknowledged to somebody else publicly. We are confessing Jesus as our master, as the one that we are going to serve and be loyal to, no matter what. And Jesus affirmed the same when he said, Everyone who shall confess me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. Matthew chapter 10. So baptism functions as a spiritual identity marker. When I come to faith in Christ, then soon thereafter it is appropriate for me at that point and for any believer to confess Jesus as Lord publicly in the waters of baptism. And the early church insisted that those who came to faith, they were to be baptized. They were to identify themselves publicly and outwardly as a disciple of Jesus Christ. And in so doing, they were therefore saying in their water baptism, I am now no longer who I used to be. I am no longer living the life I used to live. I'm now a new creation in Christ, and I'm a regenerate person who is going to announce I've repented for my sin, and now my allegiance is to Jesus Christ and my devotion is to him no matter what. Now that's baptism. But then if you follow that up with the other ordinance of the church, and that is the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper then expresses our unity and our common fellowship. We share as we are provided, as, which was provided by the cross of Christ. And again, I go back to 1 Corinthians 11. It's just all throughout that text of the chapter 11 and how Paul talks about when you come together, you're together in this whole thing. When we as members partake of this meal, we affirm our ongoing repentance. We affirm our ongoing faith in Jesus Christ. We are saying we are not perfect people. We are saying that we are broken sinners who desperately need a Savior. And we have come to say we are agreeing together that we need Christ and we need each other because we are people who struggle against the sin of unbelief. Now, Jesus taught in Matthew 18 that if a professing believer someone who says and claims that they're a follower of Jesus, if they sin and refuse then to repent over that sin, and they they refuse to do so after a private confrontation, and then with two or three witnesses, they come and establish the matter, and they still won't repent, and if it's told to the church, the church is to be informed about this particular unrepentant person's condition. And if after the church family lovingly pursues this professing follower of Jesus, and that professing believer refuses and remains hard-hearted and unrepentant. The church membership and all those other members of the church family are to what? Matthew 18:17. let that person be to them as a Gentile or a tax gatherer, which is another way of saying they need to excommunicate that member of the family. Now, Jesus knew that the church functions best when it provides loving accountability of all of its members. And when a baptized member of a local church becomes, Hebrews thirteen three thirteen hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, and we refuse to repent of known sin, we refuse to abide by the church covenant, and such members are then held accountable to their baptism, where they profess their faith in Christ, and when they professed their loyalty to Jesus as lordship, then they're going to forfeit the privileges and membership in order to help them understand what? That they don't have to be perfect, no, but to understand the necessity of continually repenting in our following of Jesus Christ as Lord. That faith and repentance are to characterize the life of a true believer all throughout their life as a believer. So our church has developed an agreement among our members in which we spell out how we understand we are going to seek to live out our life together in this particular church. We call it our church covenant. And our church covenant summarizes several biblical standards. And when members join our church, they covenant together to abide by these biblical standards. And every time we gather together to celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're not only proclaiming the Lord's death, that is, that we fall short of living to any of the standards that we're professing here, and that we desperately need a new heart, we need a new nature, we need life that we don't have in and of ourselves with Christ, But we proclaim not only that, His resurrection, His death, His return. We also affirm our corporate unity in the body of Christ. And those who choose to live in a pattern of continued uh, lifestyle that is contrary to our corporate unity, contrary to the principles of Matthew 18, and they have gone through the steps in which they've been admonished and corrected and challenged and, and spoken to in loving ways, And and when that's carried out, then eventually there comes a point where they should be excluded from this meal because then they make a mockery of the meal. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5, you need to make sure that that person's removed. It's not appropriate for them to go through this formality and and to ruin the symbolism of what's being conveyed there. So members who refuse to repent and abide by the commitments found in the church covenant are to be then excluded in the most meaningful symbol of unity that was given to the church, and that is the Lord's Supper. They do so, we do so for the good of the person who is being excluded. Why? Because we want them to repent. We want them to come into the fellowship and enjoy the unity we share together and to abide by the implications of the gospel that gives everybody hope. It is also done for the good of the church and the purity of the church, because the Bible says a little leaven leavens the whole lump. When there's sin that goes on and on and on, never challenged or repented of, it tends to then impact everybody negatively. And lastly, it's really done for the good of God's fame, God's name, and His reputation. Because what is the church supposed to be? The church is supposed to be an outward reflection of what the, of what God is like in the world. And so therefore, we do believe that membership is functioning in such a way that God's name is not only exonerated and and uh, lifted up, but also his fame and his reputation is increased when the membership lives in such a way of committed love for each other and accountability and unity together around the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father, we Thank you once again that there is hope for those of us who clearly know that we have gone astray. Those of us who know full, full well that we have sinned in word and thought and deed. We thank you, Lord, that those of us who know how much we need to, to be rescued from ourselves and from our sin, we thank you that Jesus Christ is the one mediator between God and man. We thank you that He did finish the work of sacrifice on the cross for us to pay the debt we owe that we might therefore be forgiven. But Lord, I pray that you would help us to think through the implications of the gospel, not only in saving us from our sin, but also, Lord, of incorporating us into community, into family, to making us a part of other people who similarly share the gospel together. So I pray that our time together, Father, as we reflect on the wonders of your love for us in Christ, I pray that you might even today draw someone, Father, into your family, that they might once again be amazed to think of what Christ would do, that he would take our place, that he would undergo the wrath that we deserve so that we might be forgiven in a just way. I pray, Lord, that even today someone might come to Christ realizing that they need to claim him as their Savior and their Lord. And I pray, Lord, for those of us who come to celebrate the Lord's Supper as a member of your family, Lord, I pray that you would help us to once again think through the implications of our commitment to each other, to you, and the unity we share in the gospel. And I pray, Lord, it be done for your glory as well as our good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.